I love you brought that up because I get that question all the time. When are we going to get back to 2019 prices? Drum roll. The answer to that question is... What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Jonathan Smoke is the chief economist at Cox Automotive, a subsidiary of the $20 billion Cox Enterprises. In this episode, we spoke about how the car business has transformed over the past five years, why we still have vehicle shortages, when prices will fall and by how much, when he predicts we'll get back to normal, and the time I bought 50 Chevys in one day at a single auction. Here's my conversation with Jonathan Smoke. All views of Car Dealership Guy and guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. None of the views expressed should be treated as financial advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, John Smoke on the pod. John, did you ever imagine that car prices would be moving like a stock market? This is like the number one conversation I'm having with dealers nowadays. They're like, I'm looking at my inventory. It's like a meme stock going up and down every day. What is going on? I mean, tell me, how do you perceive this? Yeah, I I definitely would never have projected all of the things that were necessary to give us the environment that uh, produced the uh, increase in car values that that we saw, you know, mainly through the pandemic. Although coming into the auto industry, I did learn very quickly that car it, it is natural for car prices to go up. There's a phenomenon every spring in tax refund season that wholesale use vehicle values always appreciate. Uh, it has happened every single year in the 27 years Anheim has been tracking it. So, uh, you know, it, it, it is always possible, um, but the, the unique conditions to shut down every factory in the world and simultaneously boost demand is really uh, what gave us what we've experienced over the last couple of years. And, and uh, you know, we're still slowly seeing some things return to normal and and uh, give us more of a track that we can follow and predict more accurately. But uh, this is certainly uncharted territory for all of us. What does that depreciation curve look like for a used vehicle? So at an individual car level, uh, usually a, a car loses about 12% of value. Um, uh, in pre-pandemic times, it was, it was miraculous actually how uh, 12% became the average uh, across all uh, model years. Now, technically, model years vary a little bit, and so you you do tend to see older vehicles, especially vehicles that are five years of age or older, very consistently deliver that amount of appreciation and, and always stay in very close relationship to mileage uh, as as well. So they're very, uh, very, very predictable. Um, the the nuances that we see kind of throughout the year, I mentioned, you know, during the spring, we normally see wholesale used vehicle values go up. And that's because tax refunds drive an inordinate amount of demand uh, in, in the spring. And so uh, basically every year you tend to have six to 10 weeks of wholesale prices going up because even though that time of year is pretty well known and, and predictable, uh, it's impossible to line up the supply uh, to to address it perfectly. So as a result, within a calendar year, you usually have less uh, depreciation in the first half of the year because you've got that strange period of time where values are stable or, or even going up. And so as a result, uh, vehicles tend to lose more of their value in the second half of the year. And that also coincides when new vehicles uh, are typically have their new models coming out 
And when new models are coming out, the older version of the new models that are in normal times still sitting on dealer lots uh, get heavy incentives and more discounting. And that's also part of the reason why there's there's usually more depreciation in the in the back half of the year. I'm curious as as you've sort of been in this position where, or let's just say your job has gotten a lot more interesting in the last couple of years. Um, <laughs> and I'm just I'm just going to guess that based on how my job has gotten interesting. But tell us about like how did you even get here? Like, what is your background, and what did you do prior to this? How did you get to your current position? I think that context is important before we dig deeper into. Uh, the economy and just a broader car market. Yeah, my journey uh, to get to where I am today was certainly not a straight path. Um, I I basically, first of all, never sought out to be an economist. Uh, I studied economics and I loved economics, but I was a very practical, want to have an impact on the world, wanted to see results, and no way did I want to go down an academic path. And that was pretty much what I thought the economics world was. So uh, I worked I worked for a year and ended up then going to gra- graduate school and got an MBA um, and went into management consulting uh, in, in the 90s. And it is the case for anybody that's ever been a management consultant. Um, my first project happened to be with a home building company. And on my second assignment, six months in at another real estate related company, that made me a real estate expert. And so I was destined to, to be in that home building and real estate uh, category. Yeah, I was checking out your LinkedIn and I was looking through, uh, I was looking through the, the background. I was like, hmm, interesting, interesting path over here. Yeah, yeah. So, and I was in that industry uh, first as a consultant and then I ended up working uh, in uh, a corporate office of a, what became a top five large public home building company in, in the country. Um, and eventually in my position, I basically saw how critical it was to have data to drive decisions that we were making. Because in home building, if you mess up on buying the land and you overpay or you buy in the wrong location, you just screwed results for like the next five to 10 years. <laughs> and um, it, it is amazing how, uh, especially back when I started in that industry in the mid-90s, how, how limited information was being used to really drive decision-making. Uh, so I ended up um, being responsible for uh, strategy uh, and basically built up an economics team and started to work with uh, well, well-known economists like Mark Zandi at Moody's Analytics and, and uh, using that data to help us uh, kind of make decisions. And I decided um, back in 2006 to uh, take my ideas and form my own company. So I started a website, started to do some things, uh, and it was going brilliantly until the Great Recession unfolded, and I ended up having to uh, sell sell my business uh, to a company that eventually named me chief economist um, because of what I was doing uh, with, with our data and working with working with clients. Um, and that ultimately eventually got me as the first chief economist for realtor.com, uh, in, in the real estate space. And, and boy, those were the years where Zillow, Trulia, Redfin, uh, realtor.com were really, it was a, it was an arms race, uh, on, on the economics and analytics side. Um, and then I learned about the opportunity at Cox and, uh, people said I was crazy because I was leaving what I had spent over 20 years developing a reputation in, in, in real estate. But 
I'd always loved cars. I thought it was an incredible opportunity to have a position with Cox, which was known to me personally. I'd lived in Atlanta for uh, for quite a while and, and knew lots of folks uh, in various parts of, of Cox. Plus, as a data guy, at the end of the day, you couldn't dream of a place that's better for having uh, unique, uh, detailed, proprietary insights into you know, every corner of the automotive business. Um, so uh, I, I jumped at the opportunity. I've been here a little over six years, and you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it has been a very interesting time, um, uh, certainly one also to be an economist uh, in just, you know, more broadly looking at the economy and all the things that's been uh, things that have been impacting us. Uh, but, you know, I have, have zero regrets. This has been a wonderful place to be. So six years, right? Now, the business has transformed an incredible amount just in the past couple of years. I think there's no doubt about it that the, the 2000s, you know, we saw the rise in the internet and websites. And then in the early 2010s, we got this kind of reinvented online car buying in 2013. You had Shift, you had Room, you had Carvana. But I mean, the last six years, what have been the most impactful changes or transformations that you've witnessed in the car business? Well, I think absolutely digitization, um, the movement to, uh, to, to transacting completely online and, and the pandemic forced that issue uh, on the wholesale side and the business-to-business -business side in a way that I don't know if we ever would have been able to get some dealers to consider transacting the way that they now transact naturally today. Because uh, basically close to 80% of the transactions at Mannheim are now digital uh, in, in some form or fashion. And this was a business that uh, up until the pandemic started uh, was, was uh, really sort of struggling with the idea of letting go with the good old days and the people that would talk about, um, you know, the fried chicken at Mannheim and, and uh, the experience of being there on sale day. And, and don't get me wrong, uh, as an economist, watching a vehicle auction and especially being at the biggest uh, lots in the country like Atlanta, Riverside, California, Mannheim, PA, uh, there was nothing quite uh, watching 36 lanes with simultaneous bidding and uh, and 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 what was taking place. Um, uh, so m the movement to digital, there's no question that has been uh, the biggest uh, transformative change, and it's one that's still ongoing. You know, we we haven't seen the end of that. Why do you why do you like that? Right, this is what I want to understand. What's your take on? movement to digital here. I think it's it's very controversial within the industry. Now, different players within the industry have different opinions, but what's your perspective? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say I don't necessarily have a strong opinion, like I'm rooting for one side or the other. There's definitely benefits to a data guy, though. Uh, the, the more digital a transaction is, the more of fair, uh, fair. information that's being captured and insights that, that we can leverage. And in fact, information becomes part and parcel of of people's decision making. And um, so, to me, that that's probably a, a huge improvement. And I, I uh, love to uh, I love the idea of being a part of this. Um, yeah. And, and helping the helping the industry. You know, you you mentioned the the fried chicken at Mannheim. Listen, I've been to Mannheim, Pennsylvania, more times than I can count. And um, I so when did you start at Cox? Twenty seventeen was it? Yeah, early in 2017. Okay, so I'll tell you a secret. <laughs> yeah. 
in 2016, I want to say, maybe even 2015, I won't forget this because like we found this, uh, I want to say it was like Hertz or someone was having a big sale and they were selling, they were selling, um, you know, a bunch of inexpensive Chevys and stuff like that. But I just won't forget that like the price disparities were so great. It was like the first time where we're like, wow, we, we just got in like insane deals at an auction and it really fit our market very well. We had like, you know, all of our margins on those cars were definitely better than other sales on a, you know, on a relative basis. But like, I don't forget that sale or that, you know, that entire period, because I just remember how we bought like 50 Chevys in a single sale or like two sales or something. And I just remember the, the sales team, like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, what are you guys doing? buying, but we're like, no, 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 trust me. These are purchased so well, like an idiot could sell them. And it was exactly what happened. And I won't lie. Like I missed that. <laughs> I mean, who, who wouldn't miss that? That was the last year. And cause I remember that like every year after that, it just got more competitive. There were like more venture dollars flowing into the space. Cars were being bid up closer to their, I guess, you know, fair market price or even higher. That was for me as, you know, having been in the business for a while, like that was the last year where I remember we were like, wow, like there's this like inefficiency that no one knows about. I felt like I had a secret, you know? Indeed. So along with that, you know, didn't eat fried chicken, but I did love the egg, the eggs and, <laughs> um, and the hamburgers. They were, they were great. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. All right. So en enough about me. I think your recap, I think what you said about the industry transforming to digital is correct. COVID induced adoption has been just incredible, right? Like the lockdowns, all that, right? That's like a dream come true in order to get tech adoption. I think another question that I'm getting a lot now, because this has obviously had a, a big impact um, on the market is like, do you think that this has led us now into a forever K-shaped market? And what I mean by that for the audience, and you of course know is, look, car prices nowadays, you have new cars at record highs or close to record highs, used cars close to record highs. Rates of course are at, I don't know, decade highs. You know better than me, but- 20 year highs. 20 year highs, there you go. What's next? for the business? Like how should someone think about this, whether a dealer or a consumer? And when it comes to car prices, right? What do you see on the horizon for new cars and used cars in the next couple of years? Well, fundamentally, this is a a still very supply constrained market and one that is John, not- why? I'm sorry to cut you off. Well, why? People think that like Toyota's colluding with like Kia, like wh what's the deal, right? And by the way, I'm not saying that's true. I'm just I'm just saying what people are DMing me in rumors, but like yeah. what is happening? How are we still supply constrained three years after lockdowns? Well, it's was, it was kind of like how we started. You know, would you have envisioned a world in which the prices went up the way that they did? And the answer is no, because no one with a sane mind four years ago would have said, okay, we're going to shut every factory in the world down. Uh, simultaneously, we're going to unleash the possibility for everyone that has a job in the United States to work remotely um, and choose to live uh, perhaps in less population-dense areas and become even more car-dependent when the whole world was trying to sell us in 2017 that we were at peak vehicle ownership and uh, vehicle ownership was inevitably going to be replaced by uh, miles and miles of autonomous taxis that were going to take us uh, you know, everywhere. Um, so we've ended up in a world that over the last four years, the car park what we call in the industry, the number of vehicles that are, are available out there, which is uh, every new vehicle and every existing vehicle that's registered and being operated has essentially not changed. When 
in the prior 10 years, we were averaging adding four to five million vehicles a year uh, to the car park. That's the difference between new vehicle production and sales into uh, the the car park uh, minus the number of vehicles we lose uh, or, or the scrappage rate. So effectively, uh, the pie didn't change, but yet we simultaneously increased demand because population was growing, jobs were growing through that time, more licensed drivers were growing, and as I mentioned, people were actually moving away from places that they could depend on public transportation more and moving to places that were far more car car dependent. I'm we also have a, some exhibit yeah. A right here. <laughs> you did it too, huh? <laughs> I did exactly that exactly I was saying I'm out. I am not staying here. Yeah. Uh, and and so the end result has been this disconnect um, between supply and demand. Then we had the invasion of Ukraine and a series of things last year that basically caused the ability for new vehicle production to just bounce back. Um, it, it, it's it's been very difficult path uh, for vehicle uh, production to recover. So instead of popping right back to 17 million, we actually declined uh, last year because you had an earthquake in Japan, you had uh, COVID lockdowns in China that really impacted much of Asian production. You had the war in Ukraine really disrupting things in Europe, even though the war itself wasn't necessarily impacting factories directly. It was raising the cost of energy and all kinds of things that essentially all conspired, if you will, to uh, limit what could be what could be done. Um, and yet we had $4 trillion in stimulus put into the economy where at zero uh, interest rate policy for the Fed to keep the economy going, you had just perfect conditions to not only have people becoming more car dependent uh, because of not wanting to take public transportation or moving to places that were uh, more car dependent, but you actually have you had an abnormal environment that otherwise would have predicted that vehicle demand was going to be boosted simply because of consumers' economic situation and the level of interest rates and and how easy it was to get credit. Um, and we're still not back uh, to that level of production that would that would uh, cause even the new new car market to be at equilibrium with with supply and and demand. Uh, and that's why you've got. We just now, we just this year crossed the point where consumers are actually paying less than sticker for vehicles, and that was an unheard of concept uh, prior to the to the last couple of years. I saw, I saw you guys put out that insight. I tweeted that. Yeah. So I want to double click on one thing you said. We're still not back. Explain, like, to the you know, just the average person, why does Ford or Chevy have vehicles, or you know, Jeep have supply, but Toyota, Hyundai, Kia, Lexus don't. Toyota is the number one uh, retailer by units or vo volume. So I understand they sell more, but just explain to us, like, how have the domestic brands rebounded so well, and yeah. whereas you know the Asian brands have not? Well, there's a global regional lens to this. Um, so you had unique circumstances in Asia that basically caused that recovery in production to be furthest behind and, and running into issues that made them actually lose ground in some cases last year. That was particularly for a lot of the Japanese production um, because a lot of their supply chain uh, was a little bit more dependent on China, uh, a little bit more dependent on the region that uh, was having a, a much tougher time, quote unquote, getting back to normal. 
the other end of the spectrum here in North America, uh, we were blessed to, um, you know, get the vaccines earlier to, to see people returning to more normal activity. So a lot of our factories and a lot of our supply chains improved. But even so, Stellantis, Ford, GM, they were still had components that for decades, ever since the original NAFTA was created, the entire industry was very focused on where is the cheapest possible place in the world to produce every single component and have them all come together uh, really in the, in the assembly of, of the vehicle. Well, COVID taught the industry and the entire manufacturing world that there's a price to pay uh, when you have actual disruptions to transportation and factory production. So we now see manufacturing going from that world that was absolutely focused on the lowest cost and the single best place to produce something to something that's a bit more resilient and able to withstand disruptions. And that is adding uh, an additional layer of time that it takes to get us, um, you know, quote unquote, back to uh, 100% uh, production levels. Uh, and then the third component is labor. Even in North America, we're, we're not recovered on labor because guess what? We've had a labor shortage. We have the lowest unemployment rate uh, since the Korean War. Um, so, you know, no one on this podcast and probably no one listening to this podcast was alive the last time the unemployment rate was lower than it is, uh, you know, right right now. And, um, you know, as a result, even uh, and when you add we've got a strike uh, potentially coming with the UAW uh, this September with Stellantis firmly mm-hmm. in its target, uh, you basically have uh, a scenario that pr- probably even the North American production wasn't as aggressive as it typically would have been in trying to hire people and getting factories back up to three shifts and and running production. Uh, oh, and by the way, we're changing to electric vehicles. <laughs> and that causes retooling and changes at every part of the entire ecosystem. And that too sort of creates a layer of change uh, that I think really made it difficult uh, for, for us to snap back. And so at the tip of the funnel, that's where new vehicle production is. We need to be at 17 million to really sort of offset the deficit that's been happening at the top. And then in the used market, particularly in what we see at Mannheim and in the wholesale, what is being driven for the wholesale market that feeds used retail is really a product of what has happened in the new market over the last three years and where the market has been most starved are in the channels that actually traditionally feed the wholesale market and feed the used retail market, namely sales into fleets, sales into rental, sales into leases. Um, And we've got such a deficit there that when you add both new and used together, we don't think uh, it's possible for us to get to some quote unquote normal space uh, for at least five years. Uh, that's how long it's going to take. And that's assuming we okay, to see you dropped a lot of knowledge bombs here. <laughs> so normal space within five years, I that's something I wanted to ask you. Before we get there, the first question I asked you is about, you know, domestic versus Asian brands. And you mentioned three different components that have created this shortage. But what I want to understand is the dealer down the street from me right now has plenty of Jeeps in stock, but the Toyota dealer next door has none. Is that mainly a component of present day demand? simply that that Toyota has more demand than that Jeep? Or is it just the domestic brands have done a better job at rebounding their manufacturing facilities? So 
there's a supply component to what you're describing and a demand component with those two brands specifically called out. Uh, on the supply side, there is no question North American production, whether it's the traditional domestic brands or some of the brands that rely more heavily on North American production, are in a much better place and are much more likely to be closer to the level of production they had in 2019 right now than, say, uh, the factories that are producing vehicles in Japan, uh, Korea, or Europe. Which um, shocks and- me because I, all I learned about my whole life was Toyota, you know, they're the cream of the crop. And it's like, I don't know, I, w- I would have thought that they would figure out their manufacturing better and earlier than anyone else. Well, they had some bad luck. Um, I, I mentioned, and it, it sort of dismissed a lot, but there was an earthquake uh, early last year that, mm, that hit Japan that. and impacted some of their supply chain, and in particular, their access to semiconductors. So it set them back. There was a while, uh, in especially in the first half of 2021, it looked like Toyota had planned this perfectly and uh, was going to navigate the supply issues, take share uh, from all the other brands, and that pretty much ended up being the case for calendar year of 21. But boy, did that story change last year, and it was it was more a function of a lot of bad luck. Um, and when you look at the day supply, and we publish that information, you know, every every week, uh, we still see Toyota at the very bottom, and uh, you know, Jeep and Ram are at the at the other end of of the spectrum. Historically, Toyota has been close to the bottom. They are used to working in a low environment, but it's abnormally low now. And a lot of that um, has to do with really bad luck uh, that it that impacted uh, to- Toyota and some of their uh, counterparts in, in Asia uh, more than it did the North American brands. Definitely. But there is you a demand s- component to this too. Yeah, no and, and I figured that, but I was wondering how much of it is really demand versus supply. I just figured that, you know, they would figure out supply faster and better. And I think you hit the nail on the head. You just said something very concerning. I I think to a lot of people, which you said five years to normalization. What the heck does that mean? Like, what is normalization? Do we get back to pre-COVID price levels? Like, what does that really mean? Let's just like, double click on that. Yeah. Well, and I, I love you brought that up because I get that question all the time. When are we going to get back to 2019 prices? Drum roll. The answer to that question is never. <laughs> At no by the, point. By the way, no. I give the same answer, but I'm curious to see what you're going to, how you're going to answer that. Well, in, at no point in history, and you know, we've got examples like after big hurricanes that destroy a large amount of vehicles, and there's demand to replace those vehicles happening at the same time. There has never been a case that an increase in prices uh, results in prices in the vehicle market going back to what they once were. Uh, uh, vehicle prices are are very sticky, and it's more that you have step changes in in what occurs in in the prices, especially in a world that is uh, supply constrained. And there is no question that we are supply constrained. Um, so then, when when I talk about it taking five years, it's the holistic view uh, when you when you look at what what the path for new vehicle production is going to be. And it's probably the new vehicle market will be getting closer to the possibility of 17 million in less time, let's say three years. Um, there's definitely a win. And just to tell the audience, like 17 million is considered normal, right? 17 million new units sold per year, that's considered more or less normal. That's right. That's right. And uh, we think it's going to be a struggle to get there because you've got these other issues that 
you know, we were we were just talking about that are still lingering on the supply chain side. The movement to electrification means retooling of of factories. The deglobalization takes some capacity out. Uh, you've got costs relentlessly going up uh, on that side too. That suggests that maybe we're going to be in a lower volume environment. Uh, in order to uh, address the fact that affordability has has been res- reduced as well, uh, so it's not necessarily going to be a snapback to 17 plus um, the way that uh, you know prior recoveries uh, might might have played out. But it's the wholesale and the used side that takes the longest amount of time um, to to completely normalize. And and w- what does that basically practically means? It means the used car market is going to be limited in potential uh, for the number of, of transactions that occur, which means that for dealers that have uh, really focused more on the used car market over the last five years, say, especially franchise dealers, uh, maintaining growth and maintaining the level of volumes and revenue that they, they got from their used car department is going to be much more challenging and much more competitive um, because especially we've got a lack of younger vehicles, that means virtually every dealer is competing for vehicles that are five to ten years of age, which used to have unique lanes. Uh, you know, on so on the- for for people listening in dealership terms, used cars is going to shit. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not. I wouldn't say it's going to shit uh, because it, it's really one that um, is still going to have positive dynamics. Because dealers are are awesome entrepreneurs, and they they know how to respond to the market, and we're always seeing evidence of this. How are they dealing with uh, the the more limited market? They're reducing overall levels of inventory, and they're turning inventory far more rapidly. Uh, we're seeing turns that are probably meaning that most dealers are focused on thirty days or less uh, for for their typical turn turn on inventory, um, and so as a result, as the market sees periods of strength like we had at the very beginning of the year, or when the market starts to see slowing down like we've been experiencing over roughly the last six weeks, uh, dealers can more rapidly adjust and they focus on- Are you seeing anything else today? Like any other ways dealers are responding to just uh, lack of inventory in the market? Um, I think looking for ways to be as productive and as efficient as possible. Um, you know, that is uh, considering, you know, service is an area that I haven't heard you actually talk about much on your podcast yet, but it's- Are you talking, uh, you said the service department? Service, yeah. Yeah, service. Oh, we have some, I have some great stuff coming up for service. I very strategically planned the the segments. I have really good stuff on wholesale coming up. Just wait, it's gonna gonna get really good. All right. So we're gonna talk about that a lot. We'll have to have you back to maybe do some color commentary on what we see. Yeah, I mean, man, we'll do this quarterly. Like this, this could definitely be a recurring thing and it'll be, I'm sure people will love it. Um, But yeah, look, I think I've been very- Look, we're we're used only, and it's it's we're feeling the headwinds, especially if you skew more like near subprime on credit spectrum of consumers. It's very tough out there. I would say, you know, I see that the you know just friends and dealers that are maybe they're in the south or they you know sell trucks or thirty thousand dollars plus you know vehicles. They're actually their business has been a lot more consistent on the use side, um, and of course you know financeability or, you know, just approvability for their customers has been better. Um, so that's sort of what I've been seeing there. There's no doubt about it that everything you just said, I mean, is, is correct, right? Like less inventory, fewer cars, um, focusing on efficiencies elsewhere, putting more focus on 
well, well, let's talk about who's getting squeezed, right? Like I'm, I'm, I can tell you straight up who's getting squeezed. Um, vendors are getting squeezed, especially if you're not a, if you're not a vendor that's generating more cash flow. If you know wh whether it be just some organizational tool, something for project management. I mean, anything like that, you're you're likely getting squeezed. And by squeeze, I mean we're trying to like renegotiate, find a different vendor, whatever it is. I mean, we need to make sure that not only are we preserving our margins, but that we're increasing our margins at a time like this where volume is down. I mean, volume has been the biggest challenge for us, not so much the margins, but volume, right? We're selling, you know, a lot less cars than we would have at any April or May in any prior year. You go back to 2019, we're selling, you know, fewer cars, yeah. 2018. So it's been very, very challenging. And, you know, I just having had conversations, I've been very vocal about, you know, just diversify. And I think that you're right. Like everyone that invests is so heavily in used over the past couple of years right now is entering just a very challenging period where you're, you're likely not going to see top line growth or you're going to have to struggle to even get there. Our, our baseline forecast, so uh, throwing out the possibility of recession, says that the retail used market will not change over the next two years, that we're at this level uh, driven mainly by supply constraints, um, but also recognizing the affordability challenges of what's likely to be the case with interest rates. And and, and when uh, you say not change, as in units will not grow, is that what you mean? Units will not grow. Yeah, and, right. and what are you forecasting for annual unit sales used? Uh, the 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 actual total number we're in the we're in the thirty six million total, which includes private party. Mm -hmm. uh, re retail is uh, slowly crawling its way uh, up uh, towards twenty million again, um, but mm -hmm. it's it's one that we really don't think the next two years are going to create the opportunities for that. So I think the. The juicy question here is we spoke about supply levels, but what happens to prices over the next three to five years, new versus used? Yeah. So through the pandemic with the incredible run-up in used vehicle prices that started first, and the reason for that is because the used market is actually the, the part of the market uh, that is responsive to market conditions. Um, and within the used market, it's the wholesale used market uh, that actually is the best barometer uh, for what supply and, and demand uh, looks like. So we had an incredible run-up in uh, used vehicle values that started in the second half of 2020, uh, really reached its peak at the end of 2021. We gave some of that back last year. Um, and uh, over the course of that time, we basically had a scenario, especially at the end of 2021, that the used car price level was way out of alignment with the typical new vehicle uh, price level. But since that time, the relationship between the two have come much closer to balance. Uh, I would say we, we were very close to being uh, with, within the natural sort of equilibrium, meaning the market normally corrects itself when you have periods of time that used vehicle values run up or new vehicle values run up because the consumer who is either challenged by affordability and has to switch to used uh, now has an opportunity to go back into the new vehicle market and that reduces demand for used uh, and, and causes the pr prices to sort of uh, correct. And so last year's decline in, in used retail, a decline of 10% uh, by, by our metrics uh, that happened was really part of the path of getting those two 
back in in relation uh, with with one another. Um, so we don't think that there's a big gap left that that uh, calls for a, a quote unquote price correction uh, or a further reduction in, in value. Um, I think with the run up that we we had in the first three months of the year, uh, we had 12 weeks of wholesale prices uh, going up uh, to start the year. We probably are on a path that over the next three months we're going to lose all of that, uh, all of those gains. Wow. Um, but we we are projecting by the end of the year we're basically going to be back into a rhythm where depreciation is pretty normal, if not slightly below normal, simply because of the supply constrained uh, in environment uh, we're, we're in. So we think vehicle values are going to be um, returning to a much more predictable path uh, that's driven by normal time, mileage, usage uh-huh. uh, that delivers uh, depreciation. But if I put an you know, if 12% is normal, we probably are going to see depreciation that's closer to like 8% on average. Now, younger uh, vehicles- and that's, on, that's on used cars. Yeah. Younger vehicles ha- have actually appreciated more. And, appreciated and so more. They're, yeah. And they're coming down a bit more because they're the ones that are especially impacted by suddenly more incentives being in the market on the new vehicle side. Uh, and rental car companies not being as aggressive at, at uh, buying, which has definitely been a factor that we've uh, seen take place over the last couple of years. Yeah. So pretty much, I mean, from here, you're you're anticipating that within the next couple of months, we're going to give back all the gains from, say, Q1 or the first you know several months of the year. And from there, get back on this like linear... Linear, would you say a linear decline, uh, predictable decline in used car values? Yes, absolutely. And so by the end of the year, our, our current forecast says the Mannheim index is going to be up 2% year over year in December, which is pretty darn close to what a normal year over year uh, path would be uh, for, for the Mannheim index. And yeah, why that? For- Mannheim yeah. index doesn't measure depreciation, it measures the mix of what dealers are paying for inventory which naturally has inflation as, as part of it um, because every month dealers are buying a younger mix of vehicles than they bought last, last month. So over time, the Mannheim Index usually delivers a 2% gain year over year, and we think we'll be close to that by the end of the year. So if you had to, again, to keep this very simple, right, you have to advise a family member on a car purchase right now, right? What, what would you tell them? New versus used, now versus wait, lease versus buy, I know it's very general and, you know, depends on the car, the program, but like generally speaking, kind of where, where's your head at? So uh, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of questions to kind of get at what is the optimal uh, kind of purchase point. Um, I think the used vehicle market has far more opportunities to it um, than the new vehicle market in, really? in the short term. I'm uh, actually yes. surprised to hear that. And I'm really curious to hear why. Um, as long as you're not looking for a minivan, um, the the most affordable sedans out there, if you're in the market like for a luxury vehicle, uh, you're gonna see uh, you're gonna see more buying opportunities. Uh, in but the that's also market. true in the in, in the new market too. In, yeah. Interestingly, what's available, most available in the new market, and most incentivized, is also delivering the biggest used vehicle. Uh, you know, price price declines. So you kind of have opportunities in both spaces. And if you're looking for a vehicle that doesn't fit that category, that's where you're you're kind of screwed, or you need to wait. Um, 
because the condition but you're saying that if I'm looking, if let's just say, right, like I'm going to use Jeep again as an example, they're, you know, they're, they're the talk of the town today. Um, if Jeeps are, you know, have all these incentives going for them on the new side, well, the later models will also be depreciating faster on the use side. So you're likely to get a better deal on either side of the spectrum because just the overall price is coming down. That's right. And so then financing comes into the uh, category and that's where it's much trickier because if you're dependent upon credit uh, in this market right now, you're much more likely to get a better monthly payment uh, and a better total financing costs over time by buying the new vehicle um, because you're more likely to find, in some cases, a 0% interest rate or certainly something under 3% when the average new in so far in May has crossed 9% uh, for the first time in, in 20 years. Insanity. Um, so yeah. the financing- I say insanity because it's like the assets, the cars have not come down. It would not be insanity if cars were like, you know, fell by, you know, $10,000 a piece, but it's insanity when their interest rates are this high and that this the, That's the right. collateral is hasn't moved. If anything, it's gone up. Yeah, yeah. So it it's going to be, depend on what segment you're you're uh, you're looking to buy in. And unfortunately, for some segments, it like the one you just transacted in. I think it's gonna gonna be one where it's gonna take uh, several years uh, for it to be an environment where you can brag about the deal uh, that that you got. Yeah, I mean, I gotta tell you, like, I never thought I would have to use connections to buy a freaking minivan. Like it's a, it was a weird experience. Um, and the fact that I bought a new minivan for less than I would have paid used, right? That's another very weird phenomenon, but it's just the current state of the market and it's uh, it's super competitive. I just, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So, um, all right. So Elon Musk, friend of the pod, he's shouted this out a couple of times. Maybe he's listening right now. So, hey, Elon, if you're listening, um, tell us your take on EVs. I, I know you've made over the past couple of years, there's been some investments and I, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, we have a we have a mobility division that's very focused on electric vehicles. Uh, we bought a company two years ago called Spears New Technology, which is uh, a major player in Second Life recycling, uh, working, and we are diligently working on incorporating electric vehicle battery health into all of the valuation metrics that we do from Mannheim MMR to uh, Kelly Blue Book uh, values. So um, that that is definitely a space and we are seeing momentum. Um, you know, it's not just on the new side. Uh, we had our biggest quarter ever with electric vehicle sales at Mannheim uh, in the first quarter this year. So while the used vehicle market is, is tight and very low, the shift, which has taken years uh, to really uh, come to fruition is finally taking place and it's becoming meaningful to more uh, of of dealers in the broader community and, and the retail uh, market. So we think this is only the the beginning uh, of what we're going to see in, in that space. So a lot of what my team is going to be focused on is, you know, the things that you've come accustomed to seeing us report on. Think of us as having a, a effectively a parallel edition uh, of the same details covering the electrified space and also covering, well, how are we seeing EVs compare uh, to ICE vehicles? Uh, at, how are you seeing? Time? Yeah, like from evaluation, depreciation curves, like how are you seeing them compare? I mean, generally, uh, like the first 12 weeks of this year, I saw all almost all vehicles appreciate 
Um, and, and over time, we've really seen electric vehicles start to perform better in terms of, of used vehicle uh, value retention. The yardstick that is traditionally measured is what is the wholesale price relative to the MSRP, that's, that's retention uh, in, in the vehicle world. And uh, especially as Elon's vehicles have slowly become the norm in the industry, electric vehicle value retention is, is head and shoulders stronger today uh, than it was five years ago. Um, and and, why, and why, is that, why, why is the price retention stronger? There's multiple reasons for that. Um, but I, I would say the electric vehicles that were sold pre-Tesla we're very heavy in everything wrong with uh, which causes vehicles to not hold their value well, meaning they were heavily leased, they were heavily sold into fleets, they were way overrepresented at, at Mannheim, uh, so their vehicle value retention was awful, uh, flat out awful. Uh, so, what, you know, at three years before the pandemic, a typical uh, used vehicle would be worth usually about 50 to 60% of what its original sticker was. Uh, we had electric vehicles when I started in, in 2017 that were worth 10% uh, wow. of, of what their original sticker was. Um, and that does not help consumer confidence in yeah. the or vehicle. Or dealer confidence, frankly. I mean, no one yeah. wants to be you know, stuck holding yeah. a hot potato, which is, you know, that was the case partially at the beginning of this year, right? When, uh, when Tesla began their price cuts, you know, some dealers yep. were like, fuck, like my, my asset just fell at like $10,000. It, it was, it was scary. And we, we are seeing a little bit of that. If Elon's listening, the, the consequences yeah. of cutting prices on the new side does have consequences. But yeah, but I, I do understand also, like I did, I tweeted about this as well. Like I think short term, there's going to be volatility and I do think long term, it's the right move. If you, if you, truly, if your goal is to increase affordability and adoption, at some point, you're going to have to, you know, take the medicine, and it's going to impact anyone else that has that, you know, vehicle on their balance sheet. So, and we've definitely seen interest. Uh, we've got the strongest interest we've ever seen in electric vehicles, and that seems to be cascading into the used vehicle market. By by what measure, though? When you say that, like, uh, by what measure? By consumer, both stated, like on surveys, are you interested in buying or are you considering an electric vehicle in your next purchase? We've gone to majority uh, Interesting. in, in, wow. in that choice. And then in what we observe on Kelly Blue Book, it's a great platform to really see what are cons consumers really looking at, what are they com uh, comparing as they're narrowing down their choices. Uh, electric vehicles are definitely part of that. In fact, the interest is way larger than the reality, um, and that's where affordability, as you were pointing out, comes into play. And would you say there's like a geographic concentration in like the coastal cities? Or is it like more evenly dispersed, right? Like I'm thinking like, are we talking about like New York, LA, you know, Texas, or are we talking about like, you know, other states as well, you know, Midwest or wherever else? So uh, there's no question electric vehicle adoption has been first a California thing, 100%. then a West Coast <laughs> thing versus the rest of the country, and then generally an urban phenomenon, other areas. We are seeing interest grow uh, across the board. Uh, but it's still a reality that you're most most likely to see uh, a consumer in an urban setting where they have access to chargers and uh, a world where <laughs> electric vehicles are. Yeah, you're more likely to have a friend that's driving one. Uh, you know, be that be where we're really going to see more sales take place. 
Well, let's, dude, this was um, super insightful. I think people will love the insight. Um, I think one thing worth mentioning here is uh, our friend John Smoke is a man of many talents. He also DJs. And <laughs> so uh, I found that fascinating. I followed your your posts, your blogs, and where you put out soundtracks. Uh, and by the way, DJ Soul, David Solomon has some competition. Uh, DJs in the economics and finance sector. <laughs> yeah. Give us some soundtracks to describe the current state of the economy. This should be fun. Well, every every quarter, um, I put together a, at least one playlist um, that I think captures the economy and the auto market themes. And I went all hip hop for the first quarter. And I still like, you know, a top so song selection from when I was in high school. It's tricky by Run DMC because, you know, when you ask me what are things going to look like, it's so tricky <laughs> uh, to uh, to forecast. Nice. Um, but my Magnus Opus uh, for playlists uh, I put out um, right before last week's Fed meeting because uh, I was hoping the Fed would actually listen um, and uh, keep re keep rates uh, un unchanged. Um, I was hoping that they would they would channel the Beatles, let it be. Uh, but in, in, instead, <laughs> let instead, it be. don't raise it, don't raise it. <laughs> instead, they were they were pushing higher and higher. So now we find ourselves in a in a scenario of. I don't know if, if we're going to necessarily see the bad moon rising um, by CCR, um, but, but, I, but I, I'm actually really concerned that the next couple of months are going to be pretty telling uh, in terms of, of pushing us in, into a recession, especially when you add uh, other risks like with the, in the banking sector and, and what's happening with uh, the debt ceiling uh, that's likely to take place o over the next uh, couple of years. Uh, and at the end of the day, I'm worried about credit. And to me, credit, um, uh, the song out of the 24 songs that I put up for that, uh, that is, is most kind of central to why, why I'm worried about the uh, indirect uh, consequences of what the Fed is doing, is Ain't No Sunshine, uh, because there ain't no sunshine when credit is gone. And um, that, that's, that's, uh, that's definitely an old school, but uh, just, uh, you know, Keep keep on me at uh, Smoke on Cars on Twitter, and I'll I'll publish every playlist that I do. Um, I gotta admit, I was when 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 we initially connected. I think your social media team um, commented on one of my posts, and I DM them and blah blah blah. But I was uh, look, I'll admit, like I came out guns blazing into the Twitterverse. I didn't really have like a plan. I was sort of like you know this social media stuff. And, you know, there's no doubt about it. Like, you know, the last six to 12 months, I've really kind of tightened up the game and really put like, you know, kind of honed in on my niche. Uh, but I was like, this would be fun. And I hope John doesn't, uh, didn't bother him. My inaccuracies early on before I really posted like the, the fine details, the data, I learned how this game works. So I'm just thrilled that we could do this. And, um, like I said, it would be great to do this, you know, on a recurring basis, you know, we can really continue having industry updates. And uh, as you started saying, like, where can, uh, where can, you know, the audience learn more about you, about your work and everything else? Well, you got, you got me on Twitter at Smoke on Cars, but really my team and I publish something almost every day uh, on uh, the insight section of, of Cox Automotive's website, which is coxautoinc.com. And just for the, look for the market insights and outlook, and you will find a Smoke on Cars section there. It's all of my stuff, but basically all of the metrics uh, and information my, my team is publishing, which I know you're a fan of. 
Uh, um, very, very much so. And so if you see me post tweets and I say, you know, VR or Source Cox Auto, you know where it comes from. Absolutely. John Smoke, thanks so much. This was awesome. Wealth of knowledge. Had a great time. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.